Well, it was summer 1955. It was a hot, steamy, sultry day in the Mississippi Delta. And there was an old green and white banged up Chevy pickup truck that was just speeding through the downtown square. And it was speeding for good reason. Because the front of the truck was driven by a couple men who were very angry because days prior, they'd seen a young black teenager named Emmett Till have the audacity to initiate a conversation and potentially flirt with a white woman. So in the back of that truck was 14-year-old Emmett. These men had abducted him. They kidnapped him. And Emmett was terrified, and for good reason. Because if you know your history, you know that he was just hours away from being tortured and eventually murdered. Now, this was Jim Crow South. This was segregated South. It was just rife with injustice. And so these men thought, we completely got away with it, that justice would not be seen. There was just one problem, and the problem was this. There was a witness, and his name was Willie Reed. Now, Willie Reed happened to be walking downtown at the exact same time. He was 18 years old. He was uneducated. He was a sharecropper, and he not only saw Emmett in the back of the truck, he also saw the two men. And as the trial was getting closer and closer, these men thought with confidence that they would get away until the prosecution brought their surprise star witness, young Willie Reed. Now, this was a time when blacks did not testify against whites. It was just this simple. To testify would be instant death for Willie Reed. And here's the logic. If they lynched and murdered Emmett Till, they're undoubtedly going to lynch and murder whoever would witness against them. And yet, Willie Reed took the stand. Later on, he would actually share with a reporter, he would say this, I couldn't walk away. Emmett was 14 and they killed him. It wasn't right, I knew. I knew I had to speak up. So the day of the trial came, young Willie came to the stand. Reporters say that he spoke so softly that you could hardly hear a word that he said. And he stuttered, and he stammered, and he was anxious, and he was terrified, and yet he pointed across the room and identified the perpetrators. And because of his bold, courageous witness, there was some measure of justice for this awful tragedy. And later on, we'll look back on this moment and say that this was a critical moment in the civil rights movement. And the point is this is that one courageous witness can change the world. Think of the speech that changed the world. It wasn't the lawyer with his verbosity and eloquent argument. It was the young man who spoke very softly, who was nervous and anxious, but just said, this is what I saw. That was the testimony that changed the world. Well, brothers and sisters, you know this, that your testimony can change the world? that your witness can have that kind of impact. And that's what we're going to discuss this morning. The opportunity that we have to witness, not to a tragedy, but to Christ. Now think about Willie Reed just for a moment. Here's three truths, three marks of any effective witness. First off, you've got to be an eyewitness. Willie Reed couldn't take the stand and say, I heard this. You don't come to the stand with hearsay or rumor I saw this on Facebook, I read this blog. When you're a real witness, you say, I was there. 
I saw it. I experienced it. I was in the room. Second, there's some sort of obligation that you have to take the stand. You're compelled. And was that with Willie Reed? He was on the side of truth. He, he felt this moral imperative that justice must be served, so I've got to do something courageous. And third, you've got to use your words. You've got to use words. In order to testify, it's got to be verbal. Well, here's the point. If you've had a firsthand experience with the love of Jesus Christ, guess what? You're a witness, and therefore you and I have an obligation to testify with our words the salvation of Jesus. Now, if you didn't know this, we're actually starting a series on the book of John. This is sermon number two. We're in John chapter one. And last week, we looked at Jesus revealing himself as the word. So if there's a certain theme for John chapter one, it's this. It's that when you rightly encounter the word, that's Jesus Christ, what do you do? You start using your words to talk about Jesus. Do you see that? When you encounter Jesus, you start telling people about Jesus. When you experience the word, you start bearing witness to the word. And the example we're going to look at this morning is a man named John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Now, this is a different John than the author of John. Okay, so we're just going to call him John the Baptist today. And there's a little bit of confusion then and confusion now about this guy, John the Baptist. There's good reason for it. When we first meet him, he lives in the wilderness. He's almost like a hillbilly in the mountains, okay, off the grid, like, like a doomsday prepper. And he dressed kind of crazy. That's why people compared him to Elijah. Elijah was this rough, you know, coarse guy, and, and, and John the Baptist reminded people of him. You almost think about it this way. If John the Baptist had like a fit of the day, it would be this. It would be camel hair vest, big leather belt, and I eat honey each and every day. And that's a little strange. But he was known as like the last prophet. If we had to view him today, he would almost be like a radical monk. Somebody who's just devoting to reading and studying and discussing scripture. But he was also pretty popular. Uh, one historian estimates that he had about 60,000 followers. So he was extremely influential then. And to make him more interesting, did you know this? He was actually related to Jesus. Some sort of distant cousin we call him John the Baptist because he had the amazing privilege of baptizing Jesus. But he also advises Jesus, mentors Jesus. And within the life of John the Baptist, we find the secret to being just like Willie Reed, a bold witness for Jesus Christ. He's an interesting man because he's humble. He says this, I'm lower than a slave. But he's also confident. Because here's what we learn, and this is the dirty secret. The original word in the Greek language for the word witness is martyreo. That's where we get martyr, or somebody who loses their life for the sake of Jesus Christ. And guess what happens to John the Baptist? He publicly opposes a king, and that's how he loses his life. So this morning, we look at John the Baptist to learn the secrets of how to be a bold witness for Christ. So if you could, turn with me. We're in John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. And then we're going to jump down to verse 19. Read with me. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, there's our word, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Jump down with me to verse 19. It says this, and this is the testimony of John. 
When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. So they said to him, who are you? He said, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had sent him from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you send the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness, that this is the Son of God. So, what does John teach us about being a witness? First, if you want to be a bold witness, you got to understand this. You are not the Christ. Okay, can everybody repeat after me? I am not the Christ. This means I'm not the light. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the chosen one. I'm not your Savior and I'm not your Lord. This is important. Because if we want to be a witness, we've got to realize there are certain, certain things we can't do and certain things we can do. So what can we do if we want to witness? Well, we can host people. We can feed them. We can open God's word and have discussions and conversations and interactions over scripture. We can share our lives. We can be generous. We can care for people. But there's just limitations to what we can do. There's also certain things we can't do. I can't save anybody. I can't redeem anybody. I can't change anyone permanently and I can't forgive your sins. Trust me. I've tried. And, and so many times I talk to young students and people in this church and I have opportunities to train people in how to witness or how to share your faith and how to evangelize and say this to me. They say, Ben, that's just, that's just so intimidating. That, that just makes me anxious. I don't know if I ever can be somebody who shares my faith because what if I offend somebody? Or what if I'm rejected? What if they ask me a question or bring up a point and I can't answer it? Or I'm just not extroverted and social and I don't think that is my spiritual gift. Or here's one I hear a lot is, how can I think about others' needs when I'm the one who needs help? See, brothers and sisters, so often witnessing is intimidating because we make it all about who? Ourselves. It's about my gifts, my knowledge, and my skills. Now think just for a moment with those different objections I shared with you. Was there anything missing? What was missing? Or more specifically, who was missing? Okay, the Christ was missing. There's no mention of Jesus in his role. 
And I know we don't have any crazy cult leaders in the room who would claim to be Jesus, but maybe the reason why we're so intimidated and anxious when it comes to witnessing is because we're trying to be the Christ. The problem is we're too focused on ourselves and not enough on Jesus. And do you see what John the Baptist says? He's got an identity. He's got a role. He's got a responsibility. He says, I'm just a trailblazer. I'm a pioneer. I'm a forerunner. I'm a way maker. He puts it this way. I'm just trying to make straight the path to Jesus. Now, I know a lot of dads probably identify with this one. Do you remember the moment when you taught your kid how to ride a bike? Big moment. Iconic moment in, in the development of your kids. Okay, I've had that privilege to do it twice. And I remember for the first time when Ellie had graduated, you know, from, from the uh, balance bike to the big girl bike. Okay, this is a big moment. So you start in the backside of the bike, and she's got her hands on the, on the, uh, the steering wheel or the handlebars. She's, she's starting to pedal, and you're running alongside with them. And eventually they get going, right? And their eyes light up because they're really doing it. And then, they, then you get terrified because you look ahead, and there's pine cones, and there's rocks, and there's cracks, and there are bumps, and so you just take off and start sprinting, and you start what? Clearing the way. Because you're trying to make the path straight for your son, for your daughter, to move towards their destination. Let me give you one more example, okay? Now, last we got some sports fans in the church, and you know, Waz did a great job talking soccer last week. And you know, soccer is a beautiful sport. It's a beautiful game. I got one gripe with soccer, and here it is, okay? Whenever a soccer player scores a goal, have you ever noticed this, what they do? It's very anti-John the Baptist. They run to the corner of the, the field, they slide on both knees, and they say what? It's all about me, okay? Celebrate me, okay? Cheer for me, you know, come around me, okay? And this is one reason why I love American football. So I got two guys who are going to come up, Okay. I got trip and I got X. Is anybody already going through like college football withdrawals? Okay, 360 days until our next college football game. So I brought college football to you. Both these guys play at West Georgia. Can we make a little noise for, for X and trip? Okay, so, okay, you guys come right here. Okay, so X plays on the defensive line and trip plays on the O line. These guys are in the trenches, okay? These guys are gritty, they're nasty. Okay, but here's what I want you to see. John the Baptist is not like a soccer player. For this, for this moment, he's like an old lineman, just like Tripp, okay? So when you look at Tripp, think John the Baptist, okay? So here's what happens uh, in a football play. These guys get down, okay? Three-point stance, hand in the dirt, okay? And Tripp has one job as an old lineman. He's got to clear the way for the quarterback or the running back to run towards the end zone. Okay, so I'm living up my dream right now. I was, a, I was a backup, never a quarterback, but I'm a quarterback today. So the quarterback says, hut, and what happens? Okay, he pushes the defensive away so that we can clear the way and score the ball. Did you guys get that right there? Can we, can we give it up for these two guys? Well done, well done. So, so if you know anything about O-linemen, they get no praise. They get no love. They get no shine. They're not, they're not making commercials. They don't get invited to the Heisman. They're not celebrities. They do the dirty work, okay? Everybody forgets about them, and they fixate on the quarterback and the running back. And, and one thing more, if you ever notice this, whenever that running back scores a touchdown, what, they, what does that O-lineman always do? He runs over to him, and we didn't demonstrate it here, okay? But they lift him up. They lift them up. 
Because they're saying, once again, this is not about me. And this is what we're called to do. We're called to clear the path to Jesus Christ. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to remove unnecessary obstacles so my coworkers and my neighbors and my friends can encounter Jesus. And it's not about me. It's not about my name, my glory, my fame. I'm here to lift up the name of Jesus. So number one, we've got to remember, I'm not the Christ. But number two, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. See, John the Baptist says, I'm so unworthy. He says, Jesus, I can't even untie your sandals. What's going on here? Untying somebody's sandals implies that you're about to wash their feet. In the ancient Near East, this is the dirtiest job there is. And you might have the nicest feet in the church. You might be like, I get a pedicure every week. Feet are nasty. They're sweaty. They're jacked up, okay, especially in the ancient Near East. Okay, this was the one job, even for a slave, they would say, this is beneath me. I'm too good for this. Okay, what's that job in your occupation? That one thing your boss asks you to do and you're like, this is beneath me. I'm too good for this. I remember a moment a couple years ago uh, where we had the opportunity to clean up the locker room, okay? So I'm down in the West Georgia football locker room and, and I had this moment where I'm like going from locker to locker and I am actually cleaning old girdles, underwear, and jock straps. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I got a college degree. I went to seminary, and here I am, okay, cleaning underwear. And look, every husband and wife, you have that one job in your house, you're like, this is beneath me. For me, it's the hair that clogs up the shower. Y'all with me, men? Okay. It might be the dirty diaper, the leaky trash bag. But this was the one job in the ancient Near East a teacher couldn't even command his disciple to do. And do you see what John the Baptist is saying? He's saying, there's nothing beneath me. I'm not too good for anything. I'm less than a slave. I'm not worthy. I'm unworthy. Now, to our modern ears, this sounds a little strange, doesn't it? And can you imagine if John the Baptist, like, sat down from a modern secular therapist or counselor? What would that person say? Well, John, this sounds like low self-esteem. And you don't need to hate yourself or loathe yourself. You need to what? You need to love yourself. And no doubt, there's a destructive way that we can despise and dislike ourselves. But when Paul, excuse me, when John says that I'm unworthy, he, he's not saying I don't like myself. He says, I'm free from myself. I forget myself. And this is actually extremely healthy. Do you notice this? John says what? I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice in the wilderness. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, you don't even, even need to look at me. You don't even need to see me. I just want you to hear me as I point people towards Jesus. This is very similar to what Paul said in Acts 20. Paul said, look, I don't even account my life as valuable or precious to myself. Paul says, I'm here for one thing, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So John more than likely gathered his disciples and he said this, don't follow me, follow Jesus. And when John looked in the mirror and examined himself, he said, look, I don't focus on myself. I I don't behold myself. I behold the lamb. There's an old Scottish pastor that puts it this way. He says this, for every look you take at yourself, 
take 10 looks at Jesus Christ. I'll put it this way. Don't, you need to glance at yourself and gaze at the cross. So what does it look like at the beginning of January? Maybe consider your resolutions, consider your goals, consider your expectations for the new year. I did some research this past week. I looked at the top five resolutions that Americans make. Probably not gonna be shocked here. They're all about self. I wanna lose weight, so I wanna gain muscle, I wanna eat more healthy, make more money, and spend less time on social media. And what if Americans for 2024, our primary goals were not about self-improvement, we actually forgot ourselves and just said, this year, I'm gonna behold the lamb. So why do we need to behold the lamb? Well, it's because we're not the Christ, because we're unworthy, but guess who is? Well, Jesus is. This is why we behold the lamb, because Jesus is worthy, and Jesus is the Christ. Now, let me give you a little context about where we're at in the Bible. There is like a revolutionary fever pitch in Israel at this moment. Each and every day, people are wondering, there's a rebellion about to break up. It would be like living in the, in the colonies in the 1700s. They're under Roman control, and the Israelites are saying, at any day, at any moment, there's got to be a worthy leader, maybe a commander, a general, a conqueror, a deliverer, maybe a George Washington, a William Wallace, a Maximus, somebody who's going to free us. And then comes Jesus. And John the Baptist sets his eyes on him, and what does he say? Behold the ruler, behold the general, behold the king. He doesn't even say, behold the lion. He says what? Behold the lamb. Behold the lamb. So what's going on here? What in the world is John the Baptist referencing? Why would he call Jesus the lamb? What John the Baptist is doing, remember he's an expert in Old Testament scripture. And he's making a connection. This is his aha moment. His eureka moment where he finally figures out that Jesus is the ultimate lamb. He's the true and better lamb. That Jesus is like a sacrificial lamb. Now, if you're brand new to the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, this might not make a lot of sense. But, but here's what I'm, I'm gonna do just for a moment. I'm gonna explain to you what was going on in the mind and heart of John the Baptist when he sees Jesus. The, the first story that probably came to mind for John the Baptist was by a guy named Abraham, Father Abraham. He was known as like the founder of their nation. And there's this one story in the Old Testament where Abraham and his son Isaac go to the very top of a mountain to make a sacrifice. And Isaac, his only son, his young son, looks at his daddy and he says, Dad, we got wood, we got fire, we're missing one thing. We're missing the lamb. And Abraham looks at his son and he says, Son, God will provide a lamb. And he does. And the point is this, instead of the firstborn dying, the lamb dies in his place. Well, then you fast forward to the book of Exodus. The Israelites have been taken captive by the Egyptian nation. They're under the rule of an evil Pharaoh. And God, via Moses, says, I'm going to let my people go. And so right before they're freed from Egypt, Moses tells the people, hey, that there's an angel of death that is going to sweep through this city. And unless you sacrifice a lamb and take his blood 
and smeared on the cover of your doorpost, you're going to die. The firstborn is going to die. But if you're covered by the blood of the lamb, the angel of death will pass over your home. In other words, this lamb dies, so you don't have to. But then John the Baptist probably remembered, each and every day at the temple, there was a daily sacrifice that was made. And here's what this looked like. The, the head of the family, the father, what he would do is he actually build an altar that's like a big pile of rocks, and he would actually gather his family. And he would get one lamb, and it was very specific, and you couldn't find like the three-legged lamb, the jacked-up lamb, the sick lamb, the gimpy lamb. You had to find the best lamb. They actually called it the unblemished lamb. And he would lead that lamb onto the altar, and he would lay his hands on it. And he would confess his sin, the sin of his family, and perhaps even the sin of his nation or community. And then he would take a knife, and he would sacrifice the lamb. Now, once again, imagine if you walked by this. What would you think to yourself? You would think this, is that this lamb died for the sins of this family. And then just to make matters even more clear, John the Baptist probably remembered Isaiah 53. Let's put this verse on the, on the board if we could. Oh, do we have it? Yeah. It says, it says this right here. We all like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. He, this is Jesus, was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. See, John the Baptist was the first to put this together, that Jesus is the true and better lamb, that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. But here's what he also knew. He knew this, that, that, that no blood of an animal, a lamb, a bull, or a goat, could actually atone for the sins. But the question here is like, why a lamb? There was a lot of animals that they sacrificed. Why not a goat? Why not a bull? Why not a bird? Well, think about a lamb. They don't buck. They don't fight back. They don't scratch. They don't bite. They don't claw. When a lamb goes to death, he goes willingly. He volunteers his life. And this is what makes Christ the ultimate sacrifice. And let me just say this. When you stop and you pause and you meditate and you consider the sacrifice of the lamb, guess who you forget about? You forget about you. You stop to think of yourself. And this is what the cross or this sacrifice reminds us of. There's a great commentator named John Stott. He says this. The lamb's sacrifice or the cross it's something done by us, but it's also something that's done for us. Let me explain. The cross is something done by us. The reason why the lamb had to die was because of our sin. It's what we deserve. Do you see this? It reminds us that we're unworthy. It humbles us. It says your sin, your selfishness is so deep-rooted and so severe that somebody had to die. I'm unworthy. But then it gives us hope. It gives us confidence. It's also something done for us. It reminds us that God loves us so much. Look at the extreme measures he's willing to go through. He died for us. And that gives us confidence that Jesus is the Christ. The cross was for us. So once again, where does John the Baptist, where does his boldness come from? Is this just self-confidence? Is he just charismatic? Is he just winsome? 
No, for most of us, we need to repent of our self-confidence. Repent of the self-directed, self-centered life. The goal to be confident is not to love yourself, but to love the lamb. And here's the good news, brothers and sisters. Even us, even everyone in this room, we know something that John the Baptist didn't. See, when John the Baptist said, behold the lamb, he was looking back. The Old Testament, the past. But we have the privilege to look ahead. And do you know this? If you read the very last book of your Bible, it's called the Revelation of John, okay? And it's all about the future. And believe it or not, it's not just about predicting, you know, who, you know, the Antichrist is, okay? The main theme of the book of Revelation, does anybody want to guess what it is? It's the worship of the Lamb. Let me give you three examples. You start in Revelations 5. And you see heavenly worship. You see every creature, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every elder, every animal. And they're united singing praise. And guess how their song goes? It goes, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And then you fast forward and you read about Jesus returning. And he's uniting heaven and earth and creating a brand new universe. And it's two becoming one. Heaven and earth being united, one flesh. So John looks up and he calls it the marriage of the Lamb. And then finally, you get to the very last chapter in this book, Revelations 22. And it gives this depiction of the heavenly city of Zion. And, and there's buildings and there's gates. And there's a tree and there's rivers. But the very epicenter of the heavenly city is what? It's a throne. And from the throne proceeds the river of life, but the throne is occupied by God and the Lamb. By the Lamb. So imagine just for a moment, if I wasn't preaching, and it was John the Baptist. He was spitting fire, preaching up here. John the Baptist would probably say, look back. Read your Old Testament. Read your Bibles. Listen to my preaching. The Lamb is the theme of everything in scripture. The lamb is the theme of every one of my sermons. And then he might say, knowing what I know now, look ahead. The lamb's the center of the heavenly city. The lamb's the object of worship. The lamb's really the climax of all of human history. But then John the Baptist would probably lean forward and he'd look at you. He might even point. And he'd say, look inside, take inventory. Evaluate your heart. Today is the lamb, the center of your life. See, brothers and sisters, I'm not worthy. We're not worthy. Only the lamb is worthy. And in 2024, would the lamb be the center of your life? Let's pray. Father God, we, we, we all want to be confident. We want to bold, be bold, just like in our daily life. And we've been sold a bill of goods that if we can just meditate and read this and do this and, and hack our way to a better, better life, then we'll finally be confident. But God, so much of what our culture does is we just fixate and obsess over ourself. We're narcissistic, we're self centered. 
So Lord, may King's Chapel be a church that has a bold witness to the Lamb. But Father, I pray that we be men and women. For every one look we take at ourselves, we take ten looks at you. That we would glance at our needs, that we would glance at ourselves, and we would gaze on the cross. Lord Jesus, may this be the year that we behold, that we meditate, that we focus on the Lamb. We pray this in your name. Amen.